Charlie Melcher, founder and director of the Future of Storytelling. And I'm delighted to welcome you to the FOSS podcast. Our guest today, Nani de la Pena, has been called the godmother of virtual reality. Her journey in new media grew out of her successful career as an award-winning print and broadcast journalist and her desire to get people to feel more viscerally the story she was covering. She earned her BA from Harvard University, an MA from the USC Annenberg School for Communications and Journalism, and a PhD in Media Arts and Practice from the USC School of Cinematic Arts. As founder and CEO of her own company, Emblematic Group, De La Pena uses cutting-edge technologies to tell stories, both fictional and news-based, that create intense, empathetic engagement from viewers via virtual, mixed, and augmented reality. She created the first VR piece ever showcased at the Sundance Film Festival and is widely considered to be the founder of the field of immersive journalism. She was named one of CNET en Español's 20 most influential Latinos in tech in 2017, Wall Street Journal's Technology Innovator of the Year in 2018, was inducted into the South by Southwest Innovation Awards Hall of Fame in 2020, and just this year was honored with a coveted Peabody Award. She's a New American National Fellow, a Yale Pointner Media Fellow, and a Senior Research Fellow at the USC's School of Communication and Journalism. And she was just recently tapped to be the founding director of Arizona State University's Narrative and Emerging Media Program based in Los Angeles. Please join me in welcoming my dear friend, Nani de la Pena, to the FOSS Podcast. Nani, it's such an honor to have you on the FOSS podcast. Welcome. Charlie, you know you're one of my favorite people on the planet. I feel lucky to spend the time with you. Mm, that is a feeling that is very mutual. So thank you for being here. In thinking about this conversation, I started to remember some of the journalism in my life that was incredibly moving to me. There was a cover photo from the New York Times some years ago that showed a picture of a father and son. The father had been shot. It was a exchange of fire between Palestinians and Israelis. And the boy had been throwing rocks. The father had come. He was telling his dad, hold on, the ambulance will come and everything will be okay. And I just saw that, read the caption, and bawled. I just was crying uncontrollably that morning in front of my paper. And it reminded me of what's so true about really powerful journalism, that it can touch us and take us out of our daily life and move us to not just powerful emotion, but to action. And it made me wonder if you had an experience like that. Were there pictures or stories that you had experienced that led you to want to become a journalist? So there are certainly many, many images that were brought into my home, really by both my parents. My father helped start the film series at UCLA, and he often would screen, you know, both documentary and plenty of films. 
But also there were things like the collection from Life magazine of World War II, mm. including the liberation of the camps. And then add on top of that the experience that my mother particularly would describe growing up in Texas as a Mexican-American. I mean, when my dad and my mom first tried to rent an apartment together, they couldn't get one. They just wouldn't lease them. My mom would describe going to like coffee shops with her best friends and and they would just never serve them. And the way that it would work is, is they'd sit there and go, you know, they'd walk in, they'd take their seat and they'd go, okay, we're ready to order. And the waitress would go, okay, be right there. And they would never come. There were just so many times that my family oriented me toward issues that matter. And I think the combination of that and a fierce desire to do something about it led me to journalism. It's so interesting to me, too, that you emphasize this idea of the information that leads to change, right? If we could get them the information, if you can cover the story correctly and and communicate the injustice, then people would pay attention. They would be moved to do the right thing. You started working with Associated Press, Newsweek, Time Magazine, even, even with New York Times, you know, some of the greatest names in journalism. But you're also talking now about documentary film and the power of that kind of storytelling. And I'm just trying to kind of understand your evolution from things that might have been more fact-based reporting to documentary filmmaking and then ultimately moving us towards your, your early work with immersive journalism and wondering if there was a desire to move towards things that created greater empathy or greater emotional impact for your audience? I think 1,000%. So, you know, print is very powerful, right? Scritches on a page, right? They're just little dark lines on a page. Dots, um, actually. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, really, literally, right? Yeah. And yet the meaning can be so profound and so important to connect with story. I moved to photos, documentary, all with the idea of trying to enhance the way that I could present a story and the way that I could connect the audiences to story. When I read about virtual reality, I didn't have the coding skills yet. You know, I slowly taught myself HTML and it began the journey for me of, of, of approaching this stuff. And then ultimately, one of my documentaries had a big piece on, it was called Unconstitutional. And it had a big piece on Guantanamo Bay Prison. I saw this grant that MacArthur Foundation was offering to take a serious documentary and turn to the digital world. And I called up a, a friend of mine, an incredible digital artist named Peggy Weil. And um, I said, let's apply for this grant. And we had like 24 hours. We decided to apply to do Gitmo and Second Life. And uh, we got the grant. And after that piece was made, so many visitors came from many universities all around the world. And that's when I was like, hang on a second. This kind of technologies offer a way to do what I started calling immersive journalism. Journalism that puts you on scene. By the way, we've had Philip Rosedale on the podcast who was the creator of Second Life. And That's right. his vision of that was really to be able to, in a way, offer a kind of intimate freedom. You could build a house, you could go anywhere, you could travel. It was like a whole other universe that he was creating of opportunity and, and expression and creativity. Describe what you did in Second Life, because I think it couldn't have been more, in a way, the opposite of that. 
What we did is we took the photos, video, you know, all the bits and pieces of that we'd gathered, I'd gathered from Freedom of Information Act material, stuff from the Department of Defense, and we used it to make a one-to-one recreation, first of Camp X-Ray, and then Camp Delta. You would first walk into a, a C-17 transport plane, and then we took control of your screen in Second Life. We hacked in, and you had agreed that you would allow us to do this, but then if a hood came over your avatar, like what happened to the real people being transported to Gitmo, and you heard sounds, you know, I used dialogue that real soldiers had said that they had heard and done, and then when the hood comes off, you find that you're literally in a stress position inside the Gitmo cage. After that, you're allowed to get up and walk around, but as you do, you first you trigger off uh, video and photographs of the real way that prisoners were being brought to the camps and what was happening inside the camps. And then when you went into Camp X-Ray, we actually had like a little, I mean, you could call it a mini game, and you would query the quote-unquote guard. It was all text-based, but the guard would, you could say to the guard, why am I here? I'm not allowed to give you that information. Can I call my lawyer? No, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to do that. Can I alert my family? Um, that isn't a possibility, sorry. So like you get this idea of what it means to lose your habeas corpus rights. I mean, I think people just still don't understand what a mockery of our legal system Gitmo is. And so you're using this set of avatars and this kind of gaming engine world to let someone have access to something that, in fact, no journalists had access to. No one was going in to watch interrogations at Gitmo. That's correct. We tried to make a virtual but accessible version of a place that was inaccessible. And and we were careful. It's not like we showed any waterboarding or anything. You know, we integrated a lot of real images, sounds, videos, very carefully, architecturally exact to the real camps, achieve a level of accuracy and integrity that would also have informed any kind of documentary or print piece I might have done in the past. And did you take some criticism for having to take some liberties in terms of telling that story? Did I take some criticism? Was that a capital C? (laughs) (laughs) I um, refused to call the enhanced interrogation technique. It was just torture. So sometimes I got grief. I was told that I was doing, you know, opinion pieces. Mostly, I feel like there's a lot of support from journalists now. I mean, when you hear, you know, the New York Times calling it immersive journalism. I mean, I just won the Peabody, right, for a Field Builder Award <laughs> for the work that I've been doing. So I think, that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's after after years of basically fingers in my face and saying things to me like, "You can't do this. This isn't journalism. These are games." You know, I I, I you know, had a pretty rough road trying to make these pieces and piece after piece after piece after piece to show people, guide people that this, in fact, is technology that's totally appropriate to use for non-gaming practices. And so after doing the Gitmo piece, your next one, was that the work you did with Hunger in Los Angeles? I had this incredible material that I had obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request. All this FOIA work uh, that I'd collected on people being put in stress positions, and there was that, you know, Donald Rumsfeld comment that, you know, I stand on my feet all day long. It's not that bad for, you know, these prisoners. We asked people to sit in a chair and put their hands, hold their hands behind the back of their back, and people were wearing a breathing strap, and when they went into the headset and they would look in a mirror, 
the individual with breathing that they saw in the mirror was hunched over, uh, like they're in a stress position in an orange jumpsuit. And they, because the breathing strap was on, you, they, they were breathing on the same uh, rate you were. And if you turned your head, the character you saw would turn your head in this virtual mirror. And you heard interrogation sounds playing in the background. And the interrogation sounds were from an actor. I had an actor yell, sit down, stand up, sit down, stand up, right? And what was crazy is when people pulled off the headset, we said, what was your body like? And everybody reported being hunched over in a stress position when they were just sitting upright. It was clear to me this was an incredibly powerful medium. Mm. I'm just so fascinated by how people, the emotional response they had to being put into a stress position, being able to also see themselves or experience being in, in that interrogation, in that position, and how it changed their understanding of what, of the kind of torture that people were being exposed to. What was some of the feedback you received from people as they came out of it? Was it was it terrifying? Was it upsetting? Yeah, I mean, everybody was like, "Whoa, whoa!" I didn't, I didn't realize. You know, there's a lot of that. I didn't realize the information that we gathered on that piece led to the immersive journalism paper, and that immersive journalism paper ended up being published by the MIT Journal Presence and became the second most downloaded article in the journal's history, you know, using virtual reality for the first-person experience of the news. So you're talking about the first-person experience of the news. And that's what we were trying to do with immersive journalism. After we finished that piece is when we began to work on Hunger in Los Angeles. Hunger in Los Angeles, I remember that so well. Really powerful piece. Here you actually had the real audio that you were able to work from, right? Not a transcript that you're having actors read, but actually audio recordings of this scene that was taking place in Los Angeles. Would you describe it? Yeah, that was a remarkable project. I really want to do something about the fact that the hungry were invisible. This is, again, right in the middle of the downturn, and food banks were literally overwhelmed and running out of food. And I thought initially that I wanted to be there, have people be on scene in the moment when a parent has to turn to their child because the food banks run out of food and you have to leave. But as we started doing these recordings, we found that at that moment, parents would just go silent. And we didn't even have GoPro cameras at that point, and I knew I was going to have to build it all in CG, and we needed good audio. This man with diabetes who was waiting in a long line for food, his blood sugar dropped too low, and he collapsed into a coma. And it was crazy chaos. Paramedics took forever to come, and when they did, they were so horrible, horrible to all the, all the people waiting in line for food. Then in the crazy chaos, a woman tries to start stealing food. So the audio by itself was extraordinary. Nani, can you share a piece of hunger in LA for us? Let's listen to that. I remember when I saw that the first time, my very initial thought is, gee, this is so low res. Like, the graphics aren't super high quality. It's a game engine, but it, it feels a little bit rough. And then by the end of the piece, I, couldn't, I didn't think about that at all. I was just totally in the piece. I was in the drama of the scene. And I was surprised by how I had forgotten about the quality of the visuals or, or like that it had a game characters that you had sort of 
adapted. Yeah, hodgepodge together. Yeah. <laughs> hodgepodge together. Donated. I spent 700 bucks of my own money to buy characters. I mean, it was just a ridiculous hodgepodge of people. You know, Charlie, I didn't know how people were going to react when we got into Sundance. And then people were taking the headset off and weeping, and they were down at the ground with the the seizure victim, like, trying to hold his head and, like, talk to him and get people to do something. And believe me, we were completely shocked, all of us, as to the reactions of, of the, you know, audience, of the participants. That's the thing to really try to understand better is how much more powerful you believe or you, you have found that these things are when you're giving people a first-person perspective on that real-life experience. You're not out of it as a voyeur. You're in it as a character. So I call that duality of presence. you feeling that you're there and you're here at the same time. And, you know, it's amazing that the mind can be activated that way with such rudimentary imagery and rudimentary tools, really, at that time. You know, we're with this crazy hacked-together headset uh, mostly put together by Palmer Lucky, right, who at this point was like the lab intern at USC and, you know, came to Sundance, crashed in my hotel room, drove the truck around for us, the van, and then drove all the equipment back. He was just a kid, right? And then nine months later, started Oculus Rift. And like two years later, sold it for $2 billion to Facebook. <laughs> yeah, actually, actually $3 billion. $3 billion, okay. <laughs> it's a pretty extraordinary story. Anyway... Um, that was a kind of a, a, a pivotal moment. And after that, cobbled together grants and did stuff on border patrol violence. And then I uh, was invited by the World Economic Forum to do a piece about Syrian refugees and a piece that puts you on the street in Aleppo when a bomb goes off. That's the one you inv- I got to share with you at FOSS. Let's listen to a piece from Project Syria. <laughs> I mean, I just want to say a lot of people are using these tools for games, for entertainment, for corporate marketing, but you were really the trailblazer, at least that I knew of, who was using them for impact storytelling, for social change, for moving people on topics that, frankly, they maybe didn't want to see or have to be in or face. But I think we should talk for a second just about scale, right? The one downside, if you will, of a VR experience is it's one person at a time. The upside of a photo on the cover of the New York Times, it's millions of people all at once. And VR is not like that. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. But getting closer, right? Whatever uh, issues Meta has, Facebook, the Oculus Quest has made it much more accessible. You know, 300 bucks and you're in, that's not bad. We know that Apple moved their top hardware guy into the AR VR team. Something's going to percolate where we are all going to be able to see this material. And, you know, every smartphone now has a LiDAR camera on it, which means that everybody can capture our world in three dimensions. And how are we going to share that with each other? So one of the things that I've been trying to do, because I really want to democratize the ability for people to make and share this content to actually scale it, is I've been building a button-based software called Reach.Love that lets anybody start to make their own stuff. You know, it's a no-code uh, software based in the browser 
that um, doesn't require you to learn how to be a C-sharp coder like I had to. There's a lot of criticism these days of journalism that it is too subjective, that, that it's people are telling, have their own set of facts, that, that uh, it's all partisan and, and biased. And, and there's also some hopelessness around that. Do you think that this kind of journalism perhaps offers us a way through this time of crisis in the world of journalism? I can't say that I'm the one who's got a solution beyond can we use this technology for good, for empathy, for connection. And I have to say Arizona State University is really starting some very extraordinary initiatives, thinking about policy and using immersive content for change. And you're now the director of this new program, this new graduate program that you're doing with ASU in Los Angeles, correct? Yeah, so I was lucky enough to be offered a position with Arizona State University to be the founding director for a new center on narrative and emerging media. They bought the old Herald Examiner building in downtown Los Angeles. Talk about scale, it's a very inexpensive university, but we have top people working there. And the goal is to really try to diversify and create a much changed demographic of who's getting to tell stories, create stories, whose narratives are being told in these new emerging technologies. It's, you know, virtual reality, augmented reality, extended reality, virtual production. So uh, it's really about narrative and emerging media. Arizona State University also has a new center uh, in Mesa. We call it the Mix Center. Literally over a dozen of people have been hired to think about immersive technologies uh, and create and learn with those new technologies. We have a new, uh, we call XRTS Fellowship. So uh, look for that. It's a very well-paid fellowship that people can apply for, XRTS Fellowship. And we're just about to announce our opening for our application for our fall cohort for the master's we're going to have here in L.A. Um, and we have some scholarship money for that, too, for particularly for this first cohort for if people apply. So we may not be able to scale yet in terms of being together to look at stuff or everybody looking at this stuff for a head, through a headset, um, but we're beginning to scale the creator's in the field uh, with a real lens on trying to diversify who, who gets to be a participant in this new field. I think about this problem that we have with the polarization of journalism and people not believing things, and uh, we none of us have the answer, but it does seem to me that one place to turn is to train more people in the fundamental principles of good journalism. So it feels to me like you are addressing the problem by helping to teach and, and, and bring up a new generation of journalists who are you know, both digitally savvy and have fundamentals of, of what it means to have you know, well-researched, well-fact-checked, the rigor of, of proper journalism, and then on top of that, add those skills to a much more diverse group of people than have normally had access to those tools. It does seem to me like that's at least a good start in terms of getting us out of where we are right now in the world of fact versus fiction. Oh, God, I recently had a colleague say to me, well, what you're doing is not journalism because you're teaching students how to make deep fakes. And <laughs> this is recently. So we're not out of the woods yet, Charlie, with in terms mm -hmm. of acceptance. It touches on something that I think storytellers have always known, that a really well-told story can be more truthful 
and get to the essence of something, perhaps even more than a set of facts or a more clinical document of something. There's often that tension in journalism between just the facts, ma'am, and here's the the arc of that story in a way that you can really connect to and relate to as a human being. Story is a real glue for uh, all humans, right? It allows us to understand the other and have empathy for the other. And I think my son really got it right when he first said to me, he's just a young guy, like 10 years ago, but he said, you know, I think the reason why it makes you care is because if you're standing there, you feel like it could happen to you too. Do you imagine a new kind of newspaper or news show? I've always tried to imagine what would it be like if Nani got to make a new form for conveying the news and you had unlimited budgets and would it be a program in VR? Would it be AR? Like what, what is it? What is that immersive first person journalism look like if it gets up to scale, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, you know, even website journalism sites still have categories. I could really imagine getting to publish a immersive journalism publication, paper, whatever you want to call it. It won't be paper, but a publication that has those sections where, um, you know, I would really like to see some of the reporters who are on the ground right now uh, in the Ukraine uh, using their smartphone to give us the ability to walk through some of the rubble. Um, I would also love for a home and garden section where you could walk through a garden and the plants are, you know, uh, immediately identified for you. I think that this is still um, a possibility. I think these verticals can be brought together in a way that would make a whole, a publication whole that people would like to subscribe to. That would be my, you know, dream. I'm hoping actually that I'm going to start doing some prototyping around that next year. Sign me up. I'm in. <laughs> and, and listen, there's use cases for AR, there's use cases for VR, and, and um, it will depend on the piece. Like sometimes your publication will not just be, okay, I'm getting up and I'm reading it in the morning, but you may need like an AR warning uh, from the journalism organization. Hey, an incident has just happened. The way that local news always helps you find out that there's been a car accident or it's an incident in your neighborhood or here's where you can donate. I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't be getting an alert on your phone while you're driving and you're wearing your AR glasses and like, quick detour here. You know, like all those things would be that the, that the journalism organization is with you. You just made me think about what was in the news, just this most recent mass murder, mass shooting, and the uh, new trend that's out there for these crazy, terrible human beings who try to live stream their attacks and make it so that people can watch them in real time. And I guess all of that just reminds us that these are just tools in the end, and we can use them for good or for terrible evil. One thousand percent. My son last night said, you know, mom, everybody I, I talked to about the incident, you know, he's 18. He said, everybody I know had watched the video or part of it. He said, I started watching it. And I turned it off. That's, you know, a separate can of worms. Um, and that's also why I think people might gravitate more towards a publication that does some filtering. These are not simple problems. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't just be trying to tackle them all the time. How do we 
filter for this stuff? How do, will AI be effective? It's complicated, but we have to keep trying every day to figure out how to stop that kind of material from being spread everywhere because it's pretty awful. Mm-hmm. It's more than pretty awful. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. Certainly, it's the hope of things like virtual reality, which we both know has been referred to as the empathy machine, that we could get to a place where people getting to understand the world through each other's eyes and through that to be able to empathize and feel connected to one another in a way that would help us become a more uh, loving and and supportive world. And certainly a lot of the trends right now are pushing us in the opposite direction. Um, but I too remain hopeful that technologies can and will be used to help not take us apart or push us apart, but but actually, as you say, to bring us together. And there will always be a tug and a pull. And don't forget that like the Rosetta Stone, right? This early written document with different translations on it. It was a tax collection document. We celebrate this amazing document when actually it was just trying to skim the money off the people. You know, technologies are always going to be used for good and bad. We know that. We know about propaganda. We know that. But in much the way, Rwanda went from a radio show that spewed so much hate that led to... Genocide. Terrible, terrible massacre. Yeah, genocide. They turned it around and then started communicating with each other through, you know, a, a soap that was intergenerational marriages and love. I mean, they literally just changed the script. And it really helped unify people. And I just think that we have to be the ones always fighting to, to change the script. I'm delighted I got an opportunity to say that on your show, Charlie. Thank you. Thank you, Nani. It's such a pleasure to spend time with you. Big hug to you, and thank you for everything you do. Thanks, Charlie. Hopefully it'll be in person soon. Thanks so much. My sincere thanks to Nani de la Pena for joining me on today's show. You can learn more about her work and the new narrative and emerging media program she's leading for ASU by visiting the links in this episode's description. Thank you for listening to the FOSS podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Future of Storytelling. FOSS also produces a monthly newsletter filled with valuable information for storytellers of all kinds. You can subscribe for free by visiting the link in this episode's description or on our website at fost.org. The FOSS podcast is produced by Melcher Media in collaboration with our talented production partner, Charts and Leisure. I hope we'll see you again soon for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on. Story on.